This is chapter 37. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 37. Our Imposing Column Starts Upward. After I had finished my readings, I was no longer myself. I was tranced, uplifted, intoxicated, by the almost incredible perils and adventures I had been following my authors through, and the triumphs I had been sharing with them. I sat silent some time, then turned to Harris and said, "'My mind is made up.' Something in my tone struck him, and when he glanced at my eye and read what was written there, his face paled perceptibly. He hesitated a moment, then said, "'Speak.' I answered with perfect calmness, "'I will ascend the Riffelberg.' If I had shot my poor friend, he could not have fallen from his chair more suddenly. If I had been his father, he could not have pleaded harder to get me to give up my purpose. But I turned a deaf ear to all he said. When he perceived at last that nothing could alter my determination, he ceased to urge, and for a while the deep silence was broken only by his sobs. I sat in marble resolution, with my eyes fixed upon vacancy, for in spirit I was already wrestling with the perils of the mountains, and my friend sat gazing at me in adoring admiration through his tears. At last he threw himself upon me in a loving embrace and exclaimed in broken tones, "'Your Harris will never desert you. We will die together.' I cheered the noble fellow with praises, and soon his fears were forgotten, and he was eager for the adventure." He wanted to summon the guides at once and leave at two in the morning, as he supposed the custom was, but I explained that nobody was looking at that hour, and that the start in the dark was not usually made from the village, but from the first night's resting place on the mountainside. I said we would leave the village at three or four p.m. on the morrow. Meantime he could notify the guides, and also let the public know of the attempt which we proposed to make. I went to bed, but not to sleep. No man can sleep when he is about to undertake one of these alpine exploits. I tossed feverishly all night long, and was glad enough when I heard the clock strike half-past eleven, and knew it was time to get up for dinner. I rose, jaded and rusty, and went to the noon meal, where I found myself the center of interest and curiosity, for the news was already abroad. It is not easy to eat calmly when you are a lion, but it is very pleasant, nevertheless." As usual, at Zermatt, when a great ascent is about to be undertaken, everybody, native and foreign, laid aside his own projects and took up a good position to observe the start. The expedition consisted of a hundred and ninety-eight persons, including the mules, or two hundred and five, including the cows, as follows. Chiefs of service, myself, Mr. Harris, seventeen guides, four surgeons, one geologist, one botanist, three chaplains, two draftsmen, fifteen barkeepers, one Latinist, subordinates, one veterinary surgeon, one butler, twelve waiters, one footman, one barber, one head cook, nine assistants, four pastry cooks, one confectionery artist, transportation, etc., twenty-seven porters, forty-four mules, forty-four muleteers, three coarse washers and ironers, one fine, ditto, seven cows, two milkers, total, 154 men, 51 animals, grand total, 205, rations, etc., 16 cases hams, two barrels flour, 22 barrels whiskey, one barrel sugar, 
one keg lemons, two thousand cigars, one barrel pies, one ton of pemmican, one hundred and forty-three pair crutches, two barrels arnica, one bale of lint, twenty-seven kegs paragoric. Apparatus, twenty-five spring mattresses, two hair, ditto, bedding for same, two mosquito nets, twenty-nine tents, scientific instruments, ninety-seven ice axes, five cases dynamite, seven cans nitroglycerin, twenty-two forty-foot ladders, two miles of rope, one hundred and fifty-four umbrellas. It was full four o'clock in the afternoon before my cavalcade was entirely ready. At that hour it began to move. In point of numbers and spectacular effect it was the most imposing expedition that had ever marched from Zermatt. I commanded the chief guide to arrange the men and animals in single file, twelve feet apart, and lash them all together on a strong rope. He objected that the first two miles was a dead level, with plenty of room, and that the rope was never used except in very dangerous places. But I would not listen to that. My reading had taught me that many serious accidents had happened in the Alps simply from not having the people tied up soon enough. I was not going to add one to the list. The guide then obeyed my order. When the procession stood at ease, roped together and ready to move, I never saw a finer sight. It was 3,122 feet long, over half a mile. Every man and me was on foot, and had on his green veil and his blue goggles, and his white rag around his hat, and his coil of rope over one shoulder and under the other, and his ice-axe in his belt, and carried his alpenstock in his left hand, his umbrella closed in his right, and his crutches slung at his back. The burdens of the pack-mules and the horns of the cows were decked with edelweiss, and the alpine rose. I and my agent were the only persons mounted. We were in the post of danger, in the extreme rear, and tied securely to five guides apiece. Our armor-bearers carried our ice-axes, alpenstocks, and other implements for us. We were mounted upon very small donkeys, as a measure of safety. In time of peril we could straighten our legs and stand up and let the donkey walk from under. Still, I cannot recommend this sort of animal, at least for excursions of mere pleasure, because his ears interrupt the view. I and my agent possessed the regulation mountaineering costumes, but concluded to leave them behind. Out of respect for the great numbers of tourists of both sexes, who would be assembled in front of the hotels to see us pass, and also out of respect for the many tourists whom we expected to encounter on our expedition, we decided to make the ascent in evening dress. We watered the caravan at the cold stream which rushes down a trough near the end of the village, and soon afterward left the haunts of civilization behind us. About half-past five o'clock we arrived at a bridge which spans the Visp, and after throwing over a detachment to see if it was safe, the caravan crossed without accident. The way now led, by a gentle ascent, carpeted with fresh green grass, to the church at Winkelmatten. Without stopping to examine this edifice, I executed a flank movement to the right, and crossed the bridge over the Findelenbach, after first testing its strength. Here I deployed to the right again, and presently entered an inviting stretch of meadowland which was unoccupied save by a couple of deserted huts toward the furthest extremity. These meadows offered an excellent camping-place. We pitched our tents, supped, established a proper grade, recorded the events of the day, and then went to bed. We rose at two in the morning and dressed by candlelight. It was a dismal and chilly business. 
A few stars were shining, but the general heavens were overcast, and the great shaft of the Matterhorn was draped in a cable pall of clouds. The chief guide advised a delay. He said he feared it was going to rain. We waited until nine o'clock, and then got away in tolerably clear weather. Our course led up some terrific steeps, densely wooded with larches and cedars, and traversed by paths which the rains had guttered, and which were obstructed by loose stones. To add to the danger and inconvenience, we were constantly meeting returning tourists on foot and horseback, and as constantly being crowded and battered by ascending tourists who were in a hurry and wanted to get by. Our troubles thickened. About the middle of the afternoon, the seventeen guides called a halt and held a consultation. After consulting an hour, they said their first suspicion remained intact, that is to say, they believed they were lost. I asked if they did not know it. No, they said they couldn't absolutely know whether they were lost or not, because none of them had ever been in that part of the country before. They had a strong instinct that they were lost, but they had no proofs, except that they did not know where they were. They had met no tourists for some time, and they considered that a suspicious sign. Plainly, we were in an ugly fix. The guides were naturally unwilling to go alone and seek a way out of the difficulty, so we all went together. For better security we moved slow and cautiously, for the forest was very dense. We did not move up the mountain, but around it, hoping to strike across the old trail. Toward nightfall, when we were about tired out, we came up against a rock as big as a cottage. This barrier took all the remaining spirit out of the men, and a panic of fear and despair ensued. They moaned and wept, and said they should never see their homes and their dear ones again. Then they began to upbraid me for bringing them upon this fatal expedition. Some even muttered threats against me. Clearly it was no time to show weakness, so I made a speech in which I said that other Alp-climbers had been in as perilous a position as this, and yet by courage and perseverance had escaped. I promised to stand by them, and promised to rescue them. I closed by saying we had plenty of provisions to maintain us for quite a siege, and did they suppose Zermatt would allow half a mile of men and mules to mysteriously disappear during any considerable time, right above their noses, and make no inquiries? No. Zermatt would send out searching expeditions, and we should be saved. This speech had a great effect. The men pitched the tents with some little show of cheerfulness, and we were snugly under cover when the night shut down. I now reaped the reward of my wisdom in providing one article which is not mentioned in any book of Alpine adventure but this. I referred to the paragoric. But for that beneficent drug, not one of those men would have slept a moment during that fearful night. But for that gentle persuader, they must have tossed unsoothed the night through, for the whiskey was for me. Yes, they would have risen in the morning unfitted for their heavy task. As it was, everybody slept but my agent and me. Only we, and the barkeepers. I, I would not permit myself to sleep at such a time. I uh, considered myself responsible for all those lives. I meant to be on hand and ready, in case of avalanches up there, uh, but I did not know it then. We watched the weather all through that awful night, and kept an eye on the barometer, to be prepared for the least change. There was not the slightest change recorded by the instrument during the whole time. Words cannot describe the comfort that that friendly, hopeful, steadfast thing was to me in that season of trouble. It was a defective barometer, 
and had no hand but the stationary brass pointer. But I did not know that until afterward. If I should be in such a situation again, I should not wish for any barometer but that one. All hands rose at two in the morning, and took breakfast, and as soon as it was light we roped ourselves together and went at that rock. For some time we tried the hook-rope and other means of scaling it, but without success, that is, without perfect success. The hook caught once, and Harris started up it hand over hand, but the hold broke, and if there had not happened to be a chaplain sitting underneath at the time, Harris would certainly have been crippled. As it was, it was the chaplain. He took to his crutches, and I ordered the hook-rope to be laid aside. It was too dangerous an implement, where so many people are standing around. We were puzzled for a while. Then somebody thought of the ladders. One of these was leaned against the rock, and the men went up it, tied together in couples. Another ladder was sent up for use in descending. At the end of half an hour everybody was over, and that rock was conquered. We gave our first grand shout of triumph, but the joy was short-lived, for somebody asked how we were going to get the animals over. This was a serious difficulty. In fact, it was an impossibility. The courage of the men began to waver immediately. Once more we were threatened with a panic, but when the danger was most imminent we were saved in a mysterious way. A mule, which had attracted attention from the beginning by its disposition to experiment, tried to eat a five-pound can of nitroglycerin. This happened right alongside the rock. The explosion threw us all to the ground and covered us with dirt and debris. It frightened us extremely, too, for the crash it made was deafening, and the violence of the shock made the ground tremble. However, we were grateful, for the rock was gone. Its place was occupied by a new cellar, about thirty feet across by fifteen feet deep. The explosion was heard as far as Zermatt, and an hour and a half afterward many citizens of that town were knocked down and quite seriously injured by descending portions of mule-meat frozen solid. This shows better than any estimate in figures how high the experimenter went. We had nothing to do now but bridge the cellar and proceed on our way. With a cheer the men went at their work. I attended to the engineering myself. I appointed a strong detail to cut down trees with ice-axes and trim them for piers to support the bridge. This was a slow business, for ice-axes are not good to cut wood with. I caused my piers to be firmly set up in ranks in the cellar, and upon them I laid six of my forty-foot ladders, side by side, and laid six more on top of them. Upon this bridge I caused a bed of boughs to be spread, and on top of the boughs a bed of earth six inches deep. I stretched ropes upon either side to serve as railings, and then my bridge was complete. A train of elephants could have crossed it in safety and comfort. By nightfall the caravan was on the other side, and the ladders were taken up. Next morning we went on in good spirits for a while, though our way was slow and difficult, by reason of the steep and rocky nature of the ground and the thickness of the forest. But at last a dull despondency crept into the men's faces, and it was apparent that not only they but even the guides were now convinced that we were lost. The fact that we still met no tourists was a circumstance that was but too significant. Another thing seemed to suggest that we were not only lost, but very badly lost, for there must surely be searching parties on the road before this time, yet we had seen no sign of them. 
demoralization was spreading. Something must be done, and done quickly, too. Fortunately, I am not unfertile in expedients. I contrived one now which commended itself to all, for it promised well. I took three-quarters of a mile of rope and fastened one end of it around the waist of a guide, and told him to go find the road, while the caravan waited. I instructed him to guide himself back by the rope, in case of failure. In case of success, he was to give the rope a series of violent jerks, whereupon the expedition would go to him at once. He departed, and in two minutes had disappeared among the trees. I paid out the rope myself, while everybody watched the crawling thing with eager eyes. The rope crept away quite slowly at times, and at other times with some briskness. Twice or thrice we seemed to get the signal, and a shout was just ready to break from the men's lips when they perceived it was a false alarm. But at last, when over half a mile of rope had slidden away, it stopped gliding and stood absolutely still. One minute, two minutes, three, while we held our breath and watched. Was the guide resting? Was he scanning the country from some high point? Was he inquiring of a chance mountaineer? Stop! Had he fainted from excess of fatigue and anxiety? This thought gave us a shock. I was in the very first act of detailing an expedition to succor him, when the cord was assailed with a series of such frantic jerks that I could hardly keep hold of it. The huzzah that went up then was good to hear. Saved! Saved! was the word that rang out all down the long rank of the caravan. We rose up and started at once. We found the route to be good enough for a while, but it began to grow difficult by and by, and this feature steadily increased. When we judged we had gone half a mile, we momentarily expected to see the guide, but no, he was not visible anywhere. Neither was he waiting, for the rope was still moving, consequently he was doing the same. This argued that he had not found the road yet, but was marching to it with some peasant. There was nothing for us to do but plod along, and this we did. At the end of three hours we were still plodding. This was not only mysterious, but exasperating, and very fatiguing, too. For we had tried hard along at first to catch up with the guide, but had only fagged ourselves in vain. For although he was traveling slowly, he was yet able to go faster than the hampered caravan over such ground. At three in the afternoon we were nearly dead with exhaustion, and still the rope was slowly gliding out. The murmurs against the guide had been growing steadily, and at last they were become loud and savage. A mutiny ensued. The men refused to proceed. They declared that we had been traveling over and over the same ground all day, in a kind of circle. They demanded that our end of the rope be made fast to a tree, so as to halt the guide until we could overtake him and kill him. This was not an unreasonable requirement, so I gave the order. As soon as the rope was tied, the expedition moved forward with that alacrity which the thirst for vengeance usually inspires. But after a tiresome march of almost half a mile, we came to a hill covered thick with a crumbly rubbish of stones, and so steep that no man of us all was now in a condition to climb it. Every attempt failed, and ended in crippling somebody. Within twenty minutes I had five men on crutches. Whenever a climber tried to assist himself by the rope, it yielded and let him tumble backward. The frequency of this result suggested an idea to me. I ordered the caravan to bout face and form in marching order. I then made the tow-rope fast to the rear mule, and gave the command, Mark time, by the right flank, forward, march! 
The procession began to move to the impressive strains of a battle chant, and I said to myself, Now, if the rope don't break, I judge this will fetch that guide into the camp. I watched the rope gliding down the hill, and presently, when I was all fixed for triumph, I was confronted by a bitter disappointment. There was no guide tied to the rope. It was only a very indignant old black ram. The fury of the baffled expedition exceeded all bounds. They even wanted to wreak their unreasoning vengeance on this innocent dumb brute. But I stood between them and their prey, menaced by a bristling wall of ice-axes and alpenstocks, and proclaimed that there was but one road to this murder, and it was directly over my corpse. Even as I spoke, I saw that my doom was sealed, except a miracle supervened to divert these madmen from their fell purpose. I see the sickening wall of weapons now. I see that advancing host as I saw it then. I see the hate in those cruel eyes. I remember how I drooped my head upon my breast. I feel again the sudden earthquake shock in my rear, administered by the very ram I was sacrificing myself to save. I hear once more the typhoon of laughter that burst from the assaulting column as I clove it from van to rear like a sepoy shot from a rodman gun. I was saved, yes, I was saved, and by the merciful instinct of ingratitude which nature had planted in the breast of that treacherous beast. The grace which eloquence had failed to work in those men's hearts had been wrought by a laugh. The ram was set free, and my life was spared. We lived to find out that the guide had deserted us as soon as he had placed a half a mile between himself and us. To avert suspicion, he had judged it best that the line should continue to move. So he caught that ram, and at the time that he was sitting on it, making the rope fast to it, we were imagining that he was lying in a swoon, overcome by fatigue and distress. When he allowed the ram to get up, it fell to plunging around, trying to rid itself of the rope, and this was the signal which we had risen up with glad shouts to obey. We had followed this ram round and round in a circle all day, a thing which was proven by the discovery that we had watered the expedition seven times at one and the same spring in seven hours. As expert a woodman as I am, I had somehow failed to notice this until my attention was called to it by a hog. This hog was always wallowing there, and as he was the only hog we saw, his frequent repetition, together with his unvarying similarity to himself, finally caused me to reflect that he must be the same hog, and this led me to the deduction that this must be the same spring also, which, indeed, it was. I made a note of this curious thing, as showing in a striking manner the relative difference between glacial action and the action of the hog. It is now a well-established fact that glaciers move. I consider that my observations go to show, with equal conclusiveness, that a hog in a spring does not move. I shall be glad to receive the opinions of other observers upon this point. To return, for an explanatory moment, to that guide, and then I shall be done with him. After leaving the ram tied to the rope, he had wandered at large a while, and then happened to run across a cow. Judging that a cow would naturally know more than a guide, he took her by the tail, and the result justified his judgment. She nibbled her leisurely way downhill till it was near milking time, then she struck for home and towed him into Zermatt. End of chapter 37